Well, uh, I don't know about you, but drivers come up with some really unbelievable uh, excuses when we get pulled over. I don't know about you. I, I, I come up with those reasons or examples. My wife may be better at it than I am. She gets out of more tickets than I do. I may get in trouble for this. Um, but if you've ever gotten a car accident and it was your fault and you have to fill out that insurance claim form, what's the temptation? The temptation is to, is to make up or maybe not make up, but direct a story in a certain path. Well, some of these stories have actually been published in newspapers. Uh, The Toronto Sun reported these samples of actual reports that were reported to insurance companies um, as reasons why they had a wreck. A pedestrian hit me and and went under my car. In an attempt to kill a fly, I drove into a telephone pole. I had been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. A little typo there. I had been shopping all day for plants and was on my way home. As I reached the intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. I didn't see the other car. It's never good to say that I've never seen the other, never saw the other car, right? The telephone pole, there's a lot of telephone poles here. Telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. Coming home, I drove in the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished. The indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. The last one, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran him over. You know, speaking of pedestrians and and thinking about collisions that happen in our own lives relationally, we have collisions relationally in our lives with other people because we're fallen. What do we do with those collisions? Do we make up reasons and excuses that it's somebody else's fault or do we own up to those things? A few questions I have for you this morning. Um, Do you have relationships in your life that you can think of that need mending, that have dents, that you're walking around with those dents, those relational dents in your life? Do you feel justified because they did X, Y, Z to you, not to make things right with them? Or maybe um, you just think it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth it. All the pain and the suffering of going through the process of reconciliation is not worth it. And then if you find yourself as the mediator between two people, and that's what happens, right? Sometimes you just find yourself in that position. Is it your temptation to take sides, or is it your desire to help reconcile? The book of Philemon, we've been studying since last week we started studying. We see someone who is the, the offender, we see someone who is the offended, and we see a mediator in this letter that Paul writes to Philemon. There are lessons rooted in the gospel to learn from this letter that we looked at last week. Last week we looked through the lens of Onesimus, the runaway slave. And we saw how the gospel changes relationship even between a runaway slave and a slave owner. A Christian slave owner. And so we saw how the gospel uniquely changes relationships. We also saw in this book how the gospel changes our runaway hearts. Just like Onesimus ran away and restored, the gospel changes our runaway hearts and also makes us useful to him. This week, through the lens of Paul and Philemon, I want you to see that what the gospel clarifies and what the gospel challenges and what the gospel calls us to in relationships. So turn with me to the book of 
Philemon. It's on page 1,000 on the Bible, maybe in front of you. It's between the books of Titus, which we just finished, and Hebrews. If you need to go to the front, you can find it in there as well, but page 1,000 on the, on the Pew Bible or the Seat Bible there. And last week I read, it's, it's one chapter effectively, it's a letter, it's one chapter, and I read through it and I explained it, so maybe there's, there's a few people, a number of people here that weren't here last week, so I just want to go back just for a few minutes and kind of retell the story. I said last week that the book of Philemon is kind of like stepping into the sequel of a movie, but when you haven't seen the first one, the first movie, and so let me just retell the story a little bit for you, and then we'll go into three gospel implications um, of the book of Philemon this morning. So I think what you have here, the characters in the story, you have Philemon. Philemon hosts the church in Colossae in his home. Um, he has a wife, uh, Aphia, and a son, Archippus. And it looks like the son, Archippus, is one of the pastors. And so he's a wealthy man. If he has a home, he also has a uh, indentured servants in the first century in a home you would see the family maybe grandparents and you'd also see indentured servants that was the social ill the black eye of the culture if you will we have some of those today Um, and so you had bond servants and Paul talks much in the New Testament about the relationship between bond servant and master but here's Philemon a believer who's come to faith in Christ by the ministry of Paul And he has a bondservant, and what it looks like happens is Onesimus, the bondservant in his household, runs away because he stole something. And in first century, a slave had no rights. I mean, in general, a slave has no rights. They labor on behalf of the one that owns them effectively. And so a slave that runs away, he finds Paul 1,500 miles away in Rome, somehow, providentially. And what does Paul do? Paul leads this runaway slave to Christ. And you know when you have conversations with people and you find out like six degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon kind of things, where you know people, somewhere in the process of of Onesimus coming to faith in Christ by the hand of Paul, leading him to Christ, they begin talking. Where are you from? Colossae. Oh, I know a guy in Colossae. His name's Philemon. And then the reality sets in for Onesimus that uh, that was my master and I ran away. And so I think in the story you see allusion to Paul knowing what Onesimus did to get to Rome. And so what do you see Paul doing? Paul could have said, hey, stay with me, minister with me. He became faithful, he became useful, but he sends him back. Wanting those two to restore their relationship with one another. And I think that's what you see happen because we have the book. Onesimus had to take the letter back to Philemon. He didn't run away. He took it back. Not only that, Philemon could have read the letter and he could have thrown it away because that letter is in your hands. And because it's in your hands, that means that the churches, it was circulated among the churches. And the people of the church also would have heard that letter. And so those are the evidences that you see a relationship that was broken come back together. That's the story of the book of Philemon. I want to show you three gospel truths rooted in this today. Looking through the lens today of Philemon and through the lens of Paul. And this is some really great practical stuff as it relates to, hey, when I'm the mediator between two people and they've got to work it out, how does that work? Uh, When I'm the offended Philemon, and I have legal, justifiable reasons not to forgive, not only not to forgive, but to punish, what does that look like as a Christian? And Onesimus is the offender. 
And he's seeking grace and mercy and forgiveness and what that looks like. And so the first point I want to make this morning is this. The gospel clarifies the end goal of our counsel and our care to others. The gospel clarifies the end goal of our counsel and care to others. I want you to see a master mediator in Paul in this situation. You can't miss it all the way through the book, verses 5. Look at verse 5. I gave you some verses there as, you, as we look through the thread of this book. Because I hear he's speaking to Philemon in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And so Paul has led Philemon to Christ. He's his brother. He knows him. And he encourages him in who he is. And he says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints... For all the saints, you might read this book and go, hey, he's just buttering them up. You know, he's just buttering up to ask him to do something for him. But I think he genuinely loves Philemon and believes in who Philemon is. And so there's going to be a big ask in the book to receive and accept Onesimus back. But he wants to build his brother up because he believes in his brother. So verse 5, and then you scroll down a little bit to verse 12. And he says this, and he's asking now for He's pleading for Onesimus. In verse 12, uh, he says, For I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So there's allusion here to counseling him, saying, This is a brother now. You see verse 15. Look at verse 15 there. For, if, for this perhaps is why he was parted for, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. So he's encouraging him to receive Onesimus, the runaway slave, back even though he would be justified by law to treat him really awfully. So this is Paul's method of being a mediator. He's encouraging him. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, they know each other, they're friends, receive him as you would receive me. That's a, that's a bold, radical statement for a slave. Receive him as you would receive me. The gospel clarifies the end goal of our counsel and care. I want to give you some principles, just real principles as you think about, man, I got stuck in this role of being a mediator between this friend and this friend or this person and that person. I want to give you some biblical uh, counsel as it relates to this. And I think this is what Paul is doing here. I think Paul is leading the horse to water, but he's letting the horse drink. He is... He's not deciding for Philemon what to do, but he certainly, he certainly is coaching him. He certainly is moving him toward doing the right thing, but he doesn't tell him what to do. He encourages him. How many times when you are the mediator, I'm the mediator, I just want to tell him what to do. Say, look, this is what you need to do. Do it now. Get it over with. Think about with your kids. Man, at age zero to two, when your kids run into the wall, you grab them, right? And, and you say, don't do this, don't do that. But as they get older, good parenting says what? Hey, how can I teach my kid to do the right thing so that he learns? That's the idea of teaching and instruction in the Lord is that not only as I'm, do I say, hey, don't do this, don't do that because I said so, but now as a kid gets older, you want to do what? You want to teach them and train them to make good decisions. You want to coach them up effectively. And this is what you see Paul doing to Philemon. He's, he lets Philemon make the call. He, encourage him, his, he encourages him toward obedience. So lead a horse to water, but let them 
drink. Don't decide. Also, this is really important, and this is probably the hardest thing. If you find yourself as a mediator in a situation amongst friends at work, don't take sides. That is one of the hardest things to do because inevitably one of those people are, are closer to you than the other. And listen, we are all our best defense lawyer. I am my best defense lawyer. So if I go to a brother and I'm upset at someone else, I'm going to tell my story. I'm probably not going to say, oh, and the other side of the story is this. Do you all do that? I don't do that. Maybe you all are better than me. I don't know. I'm my own best defense lawyer. So if you're a mediator, you've got to know that. And you've got to have wisdom in, in how you do that because there are so many situations, and you know this, there are so many situations that people step into and they hear a good friend tell them a story, and they're not... It's not that the story is untrue, but what happens is, is if I'm my own best defense lawyer, I want you to play on my team, and I want not only for you to empathize and sympathize with me, I want you to be a cheerleader from my side, right? And that's a very difficult thing for a mediator to say, how can I love them and care for them, but at the same time, help them along to see that the best thing for them is to reconcile, to reconcile. So the end goal is in mind. There's too many marriages that break up over these kinds of things. There's too many broken, dented relationship collisions that get further bruised by friends and mediators carrying the flag for the person of justice. The end goal of counsel and care is restoration. And that's what we have to keep in mind. If, you, if you're ever playing that role of meteor, that's what you need to keep in mind. As much as you love and care for that person, let's say it's a marriage, your end goal needs to be reconciliation. And I know there are hard, difficult things within that. Maybe the 0.02%, and I get that. But the goal is that, that couple under God and marriage covenant being restored. And so as the mediator, the end goal is always restoration. That's the ball we have to keep in mind. And I would encourage you in that, and you're going, well, how do I do that? That's, that's a fine line. One of, the, one of the just practical things, this is just a nugget, is to ask redemptive questions. And so let's say you have a friend who's a, who shares with you a troubled situation, and it's painful, and they're in the middle of that pain and emotion. One of the things you ought to do, instead of making statements, is maybe say, well, what's your end goal? What's your end goal? I know you're hurt. I love you. I'll pray for you. I'll walk with you. I'm for you. But what's the end goal? How do you think the other person may feel? So you're asking questions. You're coaching, right? You're coaching them along. And maybe you're too close. Maybe you're going, I'm too close. You've got you to realize this as a mediator. Maybe if you're too close to the situation, you give it to somebody else. Right? Maybe I'll say, I'm too close. This is too hard. I want to care for this person. But I also just want to be their cheerleader. And I'm really mad at this other person too now. And so I think you see a great picture of a great mediator in Paul. He had a relationship with both of these men. And he, he's trying to get both of them to come back to the table. He sends Onesimus back. And he tells Philemon in about 15 ways in this letter. Receive him. Accept him. He's your brother now. Right? So the gospel clarifies the end goal of our counsel and care to be restoration. This is what the gospel does as we confess and repent we ask forgiveness, and there's what? There's reconciliation. This is the same path that we ought to have in relationships. You ever found yourself in that spot of a mediator between two people that you love, 
Or maybe one person you know and the other you don't. The goal is restoration of the relationship. Keep that in mind. And it's challenging because you want to give sympathy and empathy, but you want to direct them toward the Lord. You want to point them toward Jesus. And it's really hard because you don't want them to reject you, and you fear their rejection or you want their acceptance, which leads kind of to the next point. So the end goal of our counsel is restoration. The gospel also does something else here. It challenges us to lay down our rights. It challenges us to lay down our rights. Look at verse 13. And 14, I would have been glad to keep him with me. This is Paul writing to Philemon. I would have been glad to keep him with me, meaning I want to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. Listen, the apostle Paul, he's the apostle, right? He has authority. He could have kept him with him if he wanted to, but he didn't. He cared more about their restoration than he did his own benefit. He laid his rights down. And listen, Philemon, let's just go through the gamut here. Philemon could argue that I am justified to punish this runaway slave, whether he's a Christian or not. Because this is the law. And he forsook me, he stole from me, and there are consequences to action. He could have chosen that route, but I think he gave up his rights. He had the right to, but he gave them up. And Onesimus, if you're Onesimus, man, this is a social black guy. We live in an awful culture. Why would I go back? They didn't pay me enough. They didn't treat me like I thought I should be treated. I'm justified because this is wrong. I don't have to go back. We do all this in our lives too. We justify, right? So we're called to, all these guys laid down their rights. Jesus calls us, right, to do the same. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad. I'm really glad that Jesus laid down his rights for me. Aren't you? You imagine being the son of God and showing up to planet earth? What a downgrade. Living amongst these fallen human beings. And he came and took on flesh. And go through all the things. And was tempted with all the things that you and I are tempted with. And they put him on a cross. And remember what he said? I could call angels down right now. And this would be over. He's in the garden. Is this really, Father, what you want me to do? And he did it. He laid down his rights for you and me. That we might know the Father because of the Son. You know, Jesus calls us as well to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Not out of duty, but if you read the rest of that passage, it's out of delight for the master. I had, a, I had a babysitter growing up, and she was a small town, so a lot of kids had this babysitter. A lot of kids I grew up with, parents in the summer, teaching school and doing different things. And um, my mom was really good friends with this lady. And a number of the other moms are really good friends. And um, she, was, she was the babysitter. I, I, didn't get to, I didn't get to eat your food until you drank all the water. Was that a thing and when you were babysitting? I don't know. That's the thing I remember. She, she was a nice lady. She loved kids. My mom and another lady did a garage sale with her one time. And they had a great relationship. She was in our church. And um, somehow the ledger 
uh, at the end got messed up. And um, my mom is like the theater arts lady. She loves English um, and language and reading and all those things. And so we help her with finances and those kinds of things. Math's not really her deal. And her and the other lady made a mistake on the ledger of who made what out of the garage sale. And our sweet babysitter, um, for years and years, held that grudge and said, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want your kids to come. And my mom would continue to attempt well, years and years. And this other lady would attempt to, to make it right. And she couldn't get to the place until finally, after 10, 15 years, she finally laid those rights down. And there's no time like the present to have and keep short accounts. I mean, they lost 10 years. 15 years because you couldn't lay those rights down. And I think my mom and the other lady tried to offer more money or all the money and it just wasn't happening. I don't want a story. I don't, I don't want to be a part of a story like that. I, don't, I hope you don't either. It's too much wasted time and holding grudges. And I realize that it takes two to tango, right? My mom had to realize that too. It takes two to tango. I'm sorry. It has to be reciprocated. There has to be reciprocation of forgiveness to have real lasting restoration, but you can still have a posture, right? You can still have a posture toward forgiveness. And are you holding a grudge? Do you feel justified in it? And you can't get that time back. Where are you challenged most? This is a hard question. I've been in this question this week. Where am I challenged most to pick up my rights? Where am I challenged most to justify my stance you know, maybe I need somebody close to me or to go, hey, maybe there's a relationship in your life, that one. Maybe your spouse, that one, for each other, to make those things right. See, the gospel challenges us to lay down our rights, whether we're the offended or the offender or the mediator. But it does one more thing, at least one more thing. The gospel calls us to pursue restoring fractured relationships. That's what Paul's doing here with Philemon. This is what he's doing with Onesimus. If you read uh, the passage, look at verses 16 through 21. He's working at the restoration of fractured relationship. Verse 16 says this, No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Accept him. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What a great gospel picture. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. He doesn't want some selfish benefit. He wants benefit in the Lord to see two guys work it out. Refresh my heart. In Christ, I love this idea of acceptance and reception. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 say this about how we're accepted. Verse 5 says this, Paul to the Ephesian church, he predestined us for adoption, that's family language, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, listen to this, which he has accepted us in the beloved He's accepted us in the beloved. When Melanie and I were dating, we were working at TBRM Sports Camp up in uh, New Braunfels. And um, she was going to uh, Texas State. And uh, I was driving 
five and a half hours from Denton in my little Suzu pickup truck back in the day. And uh, I'd come down regularly, and uh, they, her family is so, so hospitable. They give me a place to, to sleep, the best food, the best room. The joke was that the parents favored me. Um, I have that effect on people, you know. Uh, <laughs> humility. Sorry. But let's just say, I got to know her parents. Her parents are wonderful. They got to know me. But let's just say I showed up the at, up at the Mangum's house, and I didn't know Melanie, what do you think would happen? You think they would open up their home to me and let me sleep in their house and give me their best food and, and give me their... They probably would. They're great people, but um, they probably wouldn't do that. They would wonder who the heck I was. You know, when you come to faith, you are forgiven. You know why they welcome me? Because I was accepted in by Melanie to the family. Her position became my position. Her privilege became my privilege. Not because of me, but because of her. When we come to faith, we're forgiven. We're forgiven fully, finally, and freely. But we're also given something else. We're accepted in. Into the beloved. In Christ All over the New Testament, believers are said to be in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. He accepts us into His family. All the Father does for His Son, He does for us. The way He loves His Son, He loves us. If we know Him. And He calls us to accept others back into the family as well. Are you keeping short accounts? Or is the ledger growing? You know, the path of the offender is to confess and be forgiven and be restored. The path of the offended is to receive confession and grant forgiveness and pursue reconciliation. And the path for the mediator is to set the table for reconciliation to happen. Do you remember that parable in Matthew chapter 18? The unforgiving servant. Peter came to Jesus and said, hey, how many times do I have to forgive? And he gave him an answer before he let Jesus answer, and he said, maybe seven. Maybe it was because the person did it eight times, I don't know, this is Peter. And Jesus said what? He said 70 times seven, right? And then he told the parable, he told the parable of the unforgiving servant. The parable goes like this. There was a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, And one of the servants came and owed him 10,000 talents. And the king decided that he was going to sell the man and his family. And then the servant said, please be patient with me. I'll repay you. And then the text says that in his compassion and his mercy, that he forgave the debt of the man who came asking to have his debts made clean. And then the parable turns, and you see this servant who's been forgiven a great debt. And he finds another servant, a fellow servant, and the servant owes him. And he said, hey, you owe me. And the servant said, would you be patient with me, but would you be merciful to me? And the servant choked him. The one who had been forgiven choked him and sent him to prison. 
And the text says, Jesus says it, it disturbed all the people. You ever seen this situation? Like, man. It disturbed all the people and the master found out. And the master was not happy. He said, I have forgiven you 10,000 denarii. And this small debt that this person paid, you can't repay. You know, that's a picture of the gospel. This indescribable debt that you and I have. That there's no way we could repay. There's no way we could repay. And yet, Jesus paid that debt for us on the cross. And He calls us to take the little debts that other people owe us and forgive them like He has forgiven us. Your takeaway today is this. You are never more like God than when you forgive. You are never more like God than when you forgive. Let me pray. Father, make us a people through your Spirit who keep short accounts. Who, Lord, um, I pray for us. Lord, if we, we are the person that's the offender, I pray that you would move in our hearts to, to pursue the person that we've wronged, that we would consider it, we would consider confessing and asking for forgiveness, and live in the joy and the freedom that you grant of being forgiven. And Lord, I pray that if there are people here that are thinking about that relationship where somebody's wronged them, Lord, those are the ones in our flesh that we really think about, that we ponder, that we have conversations with ourselves about, and how we're justified. And Lord, I pray for us too that we would extend forgiveness, which is hard, but you would do that through the work of the Spirit. And Lord, I pray for those here that are in between situations, that they find themselves needing your wisdom and your counsel to shepherd people through a hard, difficult situation. And Lord, I pray that you would keep their eyes on the gospel and on reconciliation to help people reconcile with one another as a picture of what you've done for us. We love you, and we thank you for time this morning. And we thank you, we thank you that we're not left to ourselves to work this out. But by your grace and through your spirit, you enable us, you help us. In Jesus' name, amen.